Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast. This conversation was recorded earlier this year as the second in the Edelman Aspen UK Trust Dialogue series. Hello and thank you for joining the second event in the Edelman Aspen UK Trust Dialogue series. I'm Penny Richards. I'm the CEO of the Aspen Institute in the UK and it really is a privilege for me to introduce what I know will be a fascinating conversation. In our first Edelman Aspen UK Trust Dialogue event, we explored trust in the institution of the media with Mark Thompson, the former CEO of the New York Times Company. Today, we are diving into economic dimensions of trust. We have a great event ahead for you, and I can't wait to hear from our expert guest. But first, a little about my organization. Aspen UK is part of a global network of Aspen Institutes, which for over 70 years have inspired and empowered leaders around the world. We know that the UK is experiencing corrosive levels of political, social and cultural division. There is a deep need for values-led leadership and respectful conversations that bring people together rather than divide them. Aspen UK's activities and work seek to do just that. We're really excited about this partnership because Edelman's Trust Barometer sheds light on societal divides and challenges we face. They measure trust in institutions across 28 markets globally, and they take a data-driven approach, which shows a deepening divide over the last decade in trust levels between the elite minority in society and the disadvantaged majority. In this trust dialogue series, we are developing a deeper understanding of the causes between the polarization we're seeing, and critically, how its driving forces can be countered in the UK and beyond. I'm sure the high-income versus low-income trust gap will be at the heart of the discussion today. All the events in the Edelman Aspen UK Trust Dialogue seek to understand this trust deficit by identifying key issues for public and private institutions, exploring why mistrust is so pervasive and how trust can be rebuilt. We will focus on four key areas in our subsequent sessions, climate change and the environment, business, politics and society please do consider joining us then too. The last discussion with Mark Thompson on the media gave us some really profound insights and food for thought. It really is well worth a watch. Now back to our session today. Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign was famously framed around the, it's the economy, it's stupid. The same could be said of the drivers, primary drivers of the trust gap I think today. And economic concerns are certainly front of mind for many at the moment. This conversation really is particularly timely. Let me make the introductions. Hugh Taggart, co-CEO of Edelman UK and Ireland and Global Head of Crisis at Edelman, will be talking with Miata van Bulle, the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation. Beyond his leadership roles at Edelman, Hugh advises businesses at the highest levels on building trust and using reputation as an asset to drive their business performance. He has nearly two decades of experience doing just this. And Miata is an economist with a wealth of experience too, working at senior levels for the leader of the opposition, the cabinet office, and the prime minister's strategy unit. She's been at the forefront of generating new ideas on reshaping the economy in government and out. She has a formidable intellect, and also the rare ability to cut through all the complexity with a clarity of thought and very practical recommendations. You'll get the chance to ask questions, which he will put to Miata, so please do submit your questions as we go along. So without further ado, Hugh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Penny, and thank you everyone for joining today's conversation. I must admit to feeling well and truly out of my depth on matters of the economy, so I'm delighted that we've got someone of Miata's calibre sitting next to me. Miata and New Economics Foundation work at the very heart of solving some of the most complex economic challenges that societies face today through the development of new research, policy ideas, and the implementation of community-based programs. They tackle everything from climate change to structural inequality and economic growth. So we'll touch on each of these areas today, as well as the role that trust plays in advancing or impeding progress on these issues. Now, I said at the outset that I'm no economic guru, but what I do know is that the outlook for the economy is rather bleak. The economy is slowing down, we have rapidly rising prices, and there's a large-scale war on Europe's doorstep. 
this looks and feels very much like a recession, or at least the beginnings of one. So perhaps I can start me out with a bit of a framing question. What exactly is it that we're facing, and what are the parallels, if any, that we can draw from the last recession, 2008? Good question. So I think the headline is, it is grim. Um, it's pretty tough, and there are two things that are happening. One is phenomenal increases in prices, and we haven't seen these sorts of price increases for about 30 years. Um, but that's also then being combined with the fact that, you know, an economy that was already skating, was already flatlining, looks like it is on course to go into recession. So we might have the combination of high prices and an economy that essentially flatlining, stagflation. And that is really tough for people. And for me, the difference with 2008 is, uh, firstly, this is going to hit people in a way that 2008 didn't. So 2008, when we had that big recession, it, it did filter into people's pockets, but this directly hits people with the cost of living. I think the second thing for me is, 2008 came after a period in which the economy was doing okay. Yeah, yeah. But we've had a decade now in which our economy has been ailing. So the repercussions of that, I think, are going to be much, much tougher. Yeah, it's interesting. I, the growth subject is, is interesting because, as you were saying, in 2008, we were in this boom. But perhaps for the last, at least the last three years, we've really been struggling largely because of the, pa the pandemic. Um, and much has been made about the slowing growth in the UK, I think, according to the OECD, uh, UK growth is set to be the lowest in the G20 aside from Russia, um, who have obviously now just defaulted on their debt. Uh, the IMF says the UK will have the slowest growth of the, the G7 nations in 2023. So how much is growth really on the government's agenda? Um, and how do they balance the economic objectives of the country with everything else that they've got going on around them? Yeah, so the, I mean, the growth problem is a real one, and it's not just the fact that we're projected to have uh, the lowest growth amongst advanced economies. But if we look back, even before the pandemic, we were seeing growth rates of just about 1%. So we were sort of just skating along and flatlining. So I think we've had a sort of six-year growth problem. Um, and to be fair to the government, I think it is on their agenda. I think the problem is they don't have a plan to tackle it. And we haven't seen a plan to tackle it. Um, and I think the, the challenge now is this year in the heat of this cost of living crisis, where they're just being buffeted by lots of different things. What is your long-term structural plan for an economy that we all know is ailing, has been ailing for a long time, got a shock with Brexit, which is when we saw yeah. the growth figures dip, and we haven't really seen that. Um, we sort of have headline talk of, you know, we'll improve productivity, we want a high-wage economy, but what is the reform agenda to achieve that? And I think that is the thing that's lacking. And the reform agenda ha has to happen at every level, yeah. not just at the top, top levels. So if we've got a budget coming up and you're in... Rishi Sunak's position, what would you be doing to try and stimulate the growth? Yeah, and stimulate the growth is the key point. So for me, I think there are two things. There are clearly some immediate stuff that the government has to do because yeah. it is tough and they're under pressure. And the quickest thing they can do is to put money in people's pockets. Which, by the way, if you do that, will also help stimulate the economy. Um, and, you know, we've got a social security system. There's a, a phrase in economics that's, uh, use, that's automatic stabiliser. So actually, if you put money in the pockets of particularly low-earning families, yeah. they spend it. They spend it in their local shops, they spend it in the economy, and that's the way in which you stimulate the economy. So for me, at the top of the list is people at the sharp end of this crisis that are really struggling, that are already beyond the choice between heating and eating, got to bolster their incomes and you do that through the social security system. I think the second thing for me is that, you know, for those that aren't, for example, on benefits but are really struggling, the squeeze middle, you've got to help them with price rises. Um, and, you know, we had this whole debate around a windfall tax, which the government then did. I don't understand why they aren't using the income from that in order to help cushion the cost of bills at a much higher level than the £400 they've committed to. And then you go on to structural reform. You've got to tackle the energy market. And for me, insulation, energy efficiency is the top of your list. Flooding the market with renewables is the second bit of your list. And then you think about, well, actually, how do we begin to get to that economy that leads to higher wages, which is the thing they talk about? And I think there's a massive opportunity because, by the way, the other objective of the government is to transition to net zero. Why on earth are we not flooding investment into our communities, into green sectors, into green services, in order to try and create jobs, in order to try and boost local economies in a way that will pay off? So I think they could take a lot of their agenda together 
in order to try to come up with a prospectus about how we help people in the short term, but how we start to transition the economy in the medium to long term. So we've got quite an interesting situation at the moment as well, because, I mean, it, it, it sort of looks and feels a bit like the 1970s as well. You've got these rising energy prices. We've got problems in, 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 in Russia. And this is a real concern. We've also got these problems with, with wages because we've now got multiple industries striking. So it doesn't appear that there's reserves there to actually stimulate. So what, what else can the government do, particularly around, around food? Because I think there was a, there was a big package, there's about a 15 billion pound package from, from Rishi Sunak. But what else can they do, particularly around food? Because I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, um, the cost of living crisis as well. Yeah, so, I mean, what's driving the cost of living crisis? The first big driver is energy. Um, and then the second thing, which we're starting to see full to three now, are food prices. In part because Ukraine was a breadbasket yep. of, of, of Europe, and we've seen a sort of shock in terms of the supply of things like grain. For me, in terms of food, the thing that you have to do is accept that some of the price increases will be filtering through, and you support people with income in order to deal with that. But I actually think there's more that they can do on the energy front. And right. let's not forget, energy bills have gone up by 40, 54%. We're expected to see another more. rise in October, and we're probably going to see another rise in December. And I, I think we've sort of normalized it because we're so used to these crazy numbers. Yeah. France is seeing energy bills go up by 4%, partly because the government has done a massive intervention where they've said to their state energy provider, you take the hit uh, and we will buffer people. And so we need to think about how we do something comparable here. And for me, part of the answer to that is, you know, you, you essentially use the balance sheet of the state in order to cover some of those costs. But the other part of it is you take something like fuel. Yeah. Filling up your tank is now £100. There is stuff the government can do in the margins. But one of the things it can absolutely do is to massively subsidise public transport and expand it as well. So if you look over it to Germany, they now have, you can travel around the public transport system uh, for something like nine euros a month. Uh, in, I think, in uh, New Zealand, they've cut it by 50%. So thinking about other interventions that just helps protect people yeah. in a world where you can't necessarily control some of the external shocks. So what you're saying is, is, is massive state-based intervention and particularly while we've got rising fuel prices that a lot of that money goes to the exchequer that's got to come back in that for me that's the headline and i say that not because i'm obsessed with government doing stuff and spending money but because you know the thing we learn in the pandemic is when you have these massive shocks that are beyond individuals ability to absorb the beyond the ability of businesses to absorb you need collective action mm. to support it the state is just all of us clubbing together to deal with big problems and for me, the cost of living crisis that we're seeing at the moment, which, by the way, I don't disassociate with the pandemic. I see this as the aftershock of the fact that we basically shut down the economy. Yeah. We saw, you know, the economy contract by the biggest amount it's done for 300 years. That doesn't just go away overnight, right? There are long, there are implications of that that we're seeing now. And so I think we are the sorts of shocks. And the dimensions of shocks means that you do need the government to step in. And it can't do that forever. But it must do that in the short term in order to then build our resilience as yeah. we can come out of this. And, 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 and one group that we must look after and those who are probably most impacted by both the pandemic and also the looming recession is the lowest income earners. And so I want to explore a little bit about this, this divide between the, the low income earners and the, and the high income earners. Because what we're seeing now is that the, the, the basic necessities to life uh, becoming out of reach, and families are taking on increasing amounts of debt. Um, and, and I wanted to talk to, the, to you about the, 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 this in the context of trust and trust in institutions between low-income earners and high-income earners. The latest figures from our trust barometer found that the trust gap between these two groups is, is, is widening, so that the trust in business, NGOs, media, and government. And in fact, the UK has the highest trust divide of any country we surveyed, which is a 34-point gap. So this is basically, it materialises 71% of high-income earners are trusting of our institutions compared to just 37% in the lower-income bracket. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you think is driving this divide? Yeah. And, and, and especially for low-income individuals, why is it so striking here? Yeah, it's funny. When I saw this stat, it took me aback. It didn't yeah. surprise me. 
but it's such a staggering number. Um, I think we've got to take a step back to try and understand what is driving that. And for me, if you like, the kind of the social contract we've broadly had in this country since the war has said, uh, you know, you do the right thing, go to work, look after your kids, and broadly, you're, year on year, you will do incrementally better and your kids will do better than you. And I think the thing that we've seen is that that is breaking down massively. Um, and it's come to head, I think, since the financial crisis, because what we've seen since 2008 is that living standards in this country have barely budged. So driven in, in large part because of stagnating wages. But today, living standards are no higher than they were in 2008. That's about 15 years in which average incomes have not risen. It's absolutely astounding. We haven't had that in recent history. So I think for a lot of people, that deal that people sign up to is fractured, which is why, by the way, the cost of living feels so tough, because yeah. there isn't that cushion. And then you combine that with, again, a sort of 10-year period where we've seen a chipping away at our, what I call our social infrastructure. You know, things like that social security system, things like public services, things that people kind of expected as part of the deal. So... I think there is increasingly a sense that I'm doing everything, I'm working hard, but actually the system isn't working for me. Um, and then when you have these moments of crisis, I think that's the point where that kind of kicks off. Um, and, you know, we don't talk about Brexit anymore, but I always saw the referendum and Brexit as a symptom of the fact that people are just like, actually, it's just not working for me. Life is getting tougher and tougher. And by the way, the deal for my kids is worse than the deal for me. Yeah. And so surely we need change. And we're going to take a gamble with something because it is better than the status quo. And I think that erosion of social settlement is a thing that is driving that sense that it's, you know, the economy doesn't work for me. Yeah, and, and, and not just the economy, but you mentioned the system. I think um, there was a stat from a, a previous trust barometer, I think in 2021, that said one in five people didn't think that the system, that is the institutions, were working in their favour and that they were finding life increasingly difficult. And, and, and just on that, are you, are you surprised to see this, the activism that we're seeing now or the unionism that we're seeing in the UK? So yes, as a, res as a yeah, result of that. So yes and no. I think uh, no because at some point people hit a tipping point, yeah. and I think the thing that and it's quite interesting since we've had uh, the kind of strikes going up the agenda. Uh, I think union membership is sort of increasing at a kind of phenomenal rate. But I think in part people people are they're frustrated and they're trying to find a route. And actually coming together and using collective action is a way in which you can have some agency in all of this. Um, where I am, the, the sort of the the yes is, I've been quite staggered by how long people have been able to suck up a raw deal. So in 2008, I was just like, surely this is the point where people say enough is enough. Uh, and then in 2015, I said, surely this is the point where people say it's enough enough. And actually, people are hugely resilient, and they've just been like, it is rubbish, but um, but it is what it is. Yeah. And there is a kind of almost resignation. Uh, that has set into our politics, which is why people are like, you know, plague on all your houses. So for me, the union activism is quite interesting because it's almost like we've either hit a tipping point where people are beyond resignation. They're like, well, actually, now I need to do something. Yeah. Um, but, but it feels like a juxtaposition. It, in some respects, in the way that Brexit did, people are just like, well, actually, that, that is something that we will show to show our disquiet and ask for change. Yeah. And I think we're going to have these moments. And I think particularly this period, which is going to feel really tough for people, can't underestimate this enough, I suspect we will shift out of, like, it's rubbish and we suck it up to we've got to do something about it. And that's why I think it's dangerous for politics if we don't get it right. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll come to politics in a moment. And, uh, sorry, I'll come to business in a moment because there is now an expectation on business to do more for its employees and for its stakeholders and its community as well. But the government, in terms of what, what they can do mm. and, and, and levelling up, um, this this sort of gap that we see between the north and the south in particular, and also uh, the high income earners and the low income earners, do you see them really committing to this uh, leveling up agenda um, right across the UK? And 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 what is it that they could be doing that might actually help to bridge some of that trust gap? Yeah, very good question. So uh, you know, I think in I think in intent, they do care about it. I, I, I don't think it's just the kind of... This, nice, this wasn't, this wasn't yeah, just a political... Yeah, yeah I think, I think they see yeah. that it is the 
political issue of the day, and they're right, and I think that they care about it. But I mean, I think the, the evidence speaks for itself. So we did a bit of analysis um, at the back end of last year and looked at what had happened to level up, leveling up between uh, 2019 when the Prime Minister took over and, uh, 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 and sort of December last year. And what we saw is if you look at incomes, um, northeast increased about 20 pounds uh, since 2019, uh, northwest 90 pounds, London 600 pounds. Uh, if you looked at the incomes of the top 50%, it went up, incomes of the bottom 50%, it went down. So, And even by percentage terms, yeah. that's the wrong way around. That is the wrong way around. So we are absolutely yeah. not levelling up. And I think for me, the, the, the two things, the three things actually I think the government needs to do, where it's sort of dancing around it but it hasn't gripped properly, is one, I am firmly of the view that you cannot do this unless you push power down. Closer to so devolving the devolving, but not in the kind of tokenistic way. Yeah. Partly because the issues in the northwest are different to the issues in the southwest, and you need that ability to kind of tailor and target. I think the second thing for me is you can't level up on the cheap. Um, and to be fair to Michael Gove, I think he recognised that. So but this, he, this is going to cost money. It's going to cost money. We've never there is no. There is no example internationally where you have closed this divide. Think about German reunification and the yeah, East and yeah. West. Huge amount of investment went into that. And we're trying to do it on the cheap. And we cannot do it on the cheap. And we do it off the back of a legacy in which we've always underinvested in this country. Um, and that is sort of paying dividends. And then for me, the third part of it is, if you think about what is driving uh, low wages in particular places and low incomes in particular places, it comes to a basket of what I call foundational sectors. So uh, things like retail, hospitality, mm -hmm. um, some public services, where you compare them to the wages that are charged, at, um, that are being um, had in other sectors like professional services. There's a huge gap. And yet we know we've got a low productivity, low wage issue in these sectors. And we've never had a plan. We have never had a plan for what you do with that. And in parts of the Northeast, you know, those sectors account for 60, 70% of the jobs. So unless you think about how you work with business to respond to that, you're only ever going to do this in the margins. And so we had, you know, we had the government showed a bit of leg, did some things with like a leveling up white paper. But for me, the three fundamental things that you need to do to kick off this agenda, we just, we're nowhere near where we need to be. Okay, and, and, and you think this is critical for the government, not only from an economic perspective, but also potentially even winning the next election? 100%. I mean, you know, I the thing I say to politicians from all sides is whatever is happening, the big political question of our day is the fact that living standards have not shifted for nearly 15 years. And everything else, the cost of living debate, everything else we're talking about is a symptom of that. Um, and in the end, you know, the, the political alignment we saw around Brexit, the political alignment we saw in the 2019 election is a reflection of that. You know, a lot of people just look at the settlement, they say, we want something different, which is why a whole lot of Labour voters in the Red Wall were willing yeah. to try and give Boris a go. Um, and so unless you can address that question, I think you have political challenges. And by the way, yeah. I think it's across both sides. But people will blame the government of the day, particularly when they promised that this was going to be the central mission of a government coming out of Brexit. Well, I, I mean, I'll read you some stats here. Last November, trust levels in the UK government fell 13 points to 29%. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the, that's the lowest it's ever been, and we are having a discussion before we mm. came on camera about, like, what is what is the bottom, and could it, could it get even worse? And, and it may do. I mean, it bounced back about three points um, just after uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine and the Western response to that, and so there was a bit of a bounce. Um, but this is coming off, a, off, off an incredibly low base. But it, it would appear now that Johnson and the government are running out of time and that they need to do something radical. But at the same time, there's, there's, there's not a lot of trust in, in politics or in, in government, the actual institution itself, and the same, so the same goes for Labour. But what can Labour be doing to, to be putting pressure on the government with new ideas, policy suggestions, radical change that they are proposing that is perhaps going to build trust in them over the course of the next sort of 12, 18 months? Yeah, I mean, so the, <laughs> this is my, the main thing that I'm preoccupied with in any conversation I have with the Labour Party <laughs> sort of centred around this. I think the biggest problem we have in politics, which comes back to this trust question, is that people don't believe that our political institutions and system can solve the problems that they have. 
life is tough for people. Um, and the thing, you know, we, we've sort of done kind of polling on this, but the thing that people say is, well, none of them, they're all the same, none of them is going to help. And that is a thing that we must, you know, I'm a believer in politics because actually I think that, you know, I do believe that collective action through the state, which is in the, in the end a political construct, and our democracy can wield huge change. And we only have to look at the last hundred years to see that. But the way that you show people that is to show that we've got answers to some of these problems. And actually, they are difficult, but I don't think any of them is insurmountable. And I think there are things that you could do. So you take, for example, you know, those are the, those, those at the sharp end of this on low incomes. We know increasing the minimum wage is an old lever we have, but that's yeah. the thing that you could do. We know that actually you could bolster social security, look across to what we see in Scandinavian countries, where actually the, the, the income you get when you're out of work is at a much, much higher base than we do because you're trying to give people enough income so they can afford the basics when they're not in work, so they can transition to work easier. So we know there's stuff that we can do there. We know that people care about a basket of public services. So that's their health, their education, uh, social care, childcare. For me, those things should be foundational and you should have them as a thing that we, you know, we have a right to yeah. assistance because you build the foundation. So we know there's stuff you can do there. We know that on the economy that actually the, the question of leveling up, I think we know what the ingredients are that starts with investment, that starts with a different settlement with businesses and places, starts with the kinds of jobs that you create, combine that with things like skills and progression. So there is a perspective I think you could develop to say to the people, to say to people, yeah, it's sort of rubbish at the moment, but it doesn't have to be this way. It is about political choices, and there are things that we can do. And, uh, you know, this isn't just the Labour Party for me. I need all political parties. You know, you will have your version of this. The Conservatives will have their version. Labour will have their version. But you need to start providing answers that feel real and tangible, that don't feel like spin, that don't feel like waffle, and people can be like, I can see how that will materially impact on my life. And that feels like the thing that we're missing at the moment. And so the thing I say to Labour is that if you want to cut through, sure, show them that you're not, you know, Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn. You've got to show people that you have solutions yeah, what's the to the plan? problem they face. Um, I wonder if there is a, a greater opportunity for government to work with business. Um, we, when we look at our, our, our trust data, we know now that business is the only trusted institution. It's the only one seen as both ethical and trusted, and it's this actual, it's this societal leadership for business that's the key to building trust with stakeholders, um, and particularly employees and, and and customers. And we've seen stories recently of small business owners um, uh, trying to go the extra mile to support their their stakeholders, and particularly their employees. Um, increased wages, flexible working hours, um, covering the cost of transport to get into work. Um, have you noticed the, the, the posture of business changing over the last few years? And, and, and what do you think the expectation is on business now to, to solve some of those issues that people don't think government can? Yeah. So two things. I definitely have seen a shift, and I'll come on to that in a moment. I think expectations are shifting, um, in part because people, you know, their employer is will be the, if you like, the institution that they have the most interaction with. You know, we spend most of our time at work. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that there is more trust for business because actually that's where people interact. And a lot of our social settlement yeah. actually comes out of the relationship and the contracts you have with business. Um, I, I mean, I think for me, three things. One, wages. Uh, and in the context of us being a relatively low-wage um, economy, uh, if you think about where our median income is, 30, about 30K, um, and in the context of you know an increasing sense that wages are not enough and not keeping, I think that will be the key pressure point for businesses, but mm -hmm. also the opportunity. I think it is interesting that a lot of businesses are stepping into what they see as the breach in government. Um, and, you know, it's quite interesting that quite recently Rolls-Royce came out and they are offering their low paid workers and their sort of junior managers um, about £2,000 to offset the cost of energy, a one-off payment, which, by the way, is what we were yep. asking the government to do for that group. Yep. Uh, but they essentially saw the gap and thought people can't cope, and we are going to do that. We're providing essentially a social service, um, which really is the responsibility of the government. But then I think the third thing that businesses 
can and should do and are increasingly doing. I've been really heartened, and it's not just started since the pandemic, it was there before the pandemic. There is clearly a big push within the business community with some leaders saying, do you know what, it's not enough. The old model where primacy to our shareholder, that was what matters, is not enough because it's eroding trust with our employees, it's eroding trust with the communities and our consumers, all of which give us a license to operate. Um, and that debate about social purpose, if you want to call it that, I think is a really powerful, it's a thing that gives me real hope because it requires a very different mode of businesses operating in communities. Um, and that is about protection of your employees, but it's also about what is your role in the places in which you operate? Yeah, and I think what you're probably going to see too is, is much greater intervention or interaction from businesses with their local communities as well. And in fact, I mean, one of the stats or uh, that, that perhaps I should have um, revealed at the start is, is actually that my employer, so not business as the institution, but my employer is even more trusted. And it's hovering around the 70% mark. So people do feel a genuine um, relationship with their employer. And I think it's changed over the course of the last two years. And we saw a lot of community involvement from businesses during the pandemic. And I think it's extended. Um, but how sustainable is it for business to keep doing this? One-off payments, sure. But if we're doing pay rises, yeah. paying for the cost of travel, and then more investment into the local communities, how, how sustainable is it that business continues to lean in? So I don't... I, it's not the role of businesses to fill the gap of the failing state, in my view. We yeah. need the government to do that. But I do think there is there has to be a recalibration between, in short, shareholders and other stakeholders. Um, and, you know, for me, and obviously I would say this, but it is sustainable as long as business is doing well. And I think there is a job to make sure there's an environment for businesses to do well. And that's, but, and that's perhaps decreasing And that is tax. decreasing. Uh, yeah. Wait, uh, yeah, like the, there is a question about the kind of stable environment. There's a question about the infrastructure you put in place. Yeah. There's a question about the support you put in place. So that is all, if you like, foundational. But when businesses are doing well, the core question for me then becomes, how do you share the proceeds of that? And I don't think the distribution of the proceeds have been right. Um, and I think there has been far more onus on shareholders than mm -hmm. there have been workers or indeed consumers, customers. And I think that needs to rebalance. And that can be done in a sustainable way. But I think that is the core of the question. And so the debate about social purpose is about how you recalibrate between those stakeholders. Um, and I think that has to be real. The other thing I'd say is, there is absolutely a role. And by the way, why it matters is not just because it's fluffy. Why it matters yeah. is because I think it has an impact on your license to operate. And in a world where people start thinking not about their employer, but about businesses not being part of the solution, yeah. that is a problem for businesses. The final thing I'd say is it is about the action you do in the place in which you operate, but it's also about letting your voice above the back of it. And so the ability to actually engage in debates, have a view, you know, and I've been really heartened actually over the last sort of three, four years, business leaders coming up and saying, this is not right. Uh, and for me, it's far more powerful when it comes to business than when it comes from an organization like me, because you'd expect me to say this, but those moments where, you know, on the question of wages, on the question of standards, on the question yeah. of where businesses say, actually, across the economy, we need better, and the best businesses say, this is what good looks like, and we're not seeing it across the board. We're really powerful, and we need more businesses to be doing that. So I think what you're saying is that from a, a, a social purpose standpoint, it can't just be the cultural and social things. It has to be mixed with the economic. Yeah, so there needs to be financial packages. There needs to be a reassurance around their stakeholders, and particularly their employees, yeah. that what they are doing for them is not just providing them with a job, but it's also reimbursing them properly for yeah. doing, doing that. And, 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 and what about government working more closely with business? I, I, I don't know whether it's this government or it's been the pandemic and the challenges that we've had over the, la the course of the last few years, but greater, greater partnership between those two must be able to solve some of these problems. Do you see that day-to-day -day at, sort of at, the, at the ground level, at the community level? Yeah. Or not, or not, and what, what more could they be doing together? So not, and for me, this is the key. And I'd argue that um, 
you know, and I think we see it done well um, in parts of Europe where it's a partnership between business, the government uh, and unions, trade unions, yeah. workers. Um, and if you can get that corporate or social partnership right, then I think you can then think about, look, how do we collect? Because in the end, none of this problem, you know, we take, let's go back to the stagnating living standards that we talked about. Government can't solve it on its own. You need the, those three elements to come together and mm -hmm. be able to think mm -hmm. about their respective roles to do that. But we don't really have the mechanism by which we do that. We do because there are always sector groups, etc. That you know, uh, the, the the business department engages with, but it's pretty superficial. Um, and the sorts of models that I think we have in Europe, I think we can learn from, um, and that's both at a national level uh, where you're thinking about, look, how do we you know, in the old traditional industrial strategies, uh, you take a sector, you will take an issue and think about what we all do to solve it, but actually at the local level, which is why for me the devolution piece is so powerful. You know, how do we equip local leaders to sit around with local businesses yeah. where the issues are more yeah. granular and real with workers to say, how do we work together to get from A to Y, from A to B? And why this for me is really important at this point is we are about to go through a huge transition. Um, I'll always you know, be coming back to kind of net zero. But I mean, there is a level of disruption that's coming, a level of industrial change that's coming, whether we like it or not, that is phenomenal. And yet the sorts of partnership that you need on the ground to think about how do we transition in a way that's good for our communities, that's good for people, we're not having those conversations. Yeah. And we'd never do industrial transition right if it's not centred on that sort of partnership. Talk to me a little bit about the industrial transition and where you see that affected, uh, yeah, affecting the most? So we know, we know that there's a lot that we don't know uh, because we don't know how smooth or how chaotic the transition will be. I fear it's going to be quite chaotic because I think we're going to sleepwalk uh, into a moment of crisis and then a little bit like the pandemic, we will just like kick a whole load of things and just panic mode. Um, but I think the two things that we do know, we know that certain parts of the country are going to be hit harder. And we did a little bit of analysis that looked at what we called, um, uh, you know, sectors that had uh, sort of a high exposure to climate change. Yeah. And what we found is parts of the economy in the north um, and the Midlands, where, by the way, we also have a leveling up challenge, are the ones that are going to be hit the highest because they have high energy intensive sectors there. Uh, so we know, if you like, the divide that we see across the country is likely to be compounded if we don't find a way to help that transition happen in a just way. And we know low-income families are going to be struggling because in the end, the cost of that transition, the impact of that transition on jobs are going to hit them harder. Uh, you know, broadly, higher-income people and professional services jobs yeah. are going to be okay. Uh, and so for me, it's almost like where the pain is now is where the pain will be in the transition yeah. unless there is a plan for how we do that well. And, and, and this plan, of course, is going to require huge investment. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this sort of shift to a, a decarbonized industry and society. How much, and, 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 and your foundation has a mission to create an economic-wide plan, which, which includes heavy in, yeah. investment. Just tell me a little bit about what the war in Ukraine um, does to this and how far it sets back that agenda and the government's agenda because there, there did appear to be some momentum with, with, with COP here last year and it, it, it really dominated for a period of time the front pages. That's been pushed back now. Yeah. And so, so how much damage has that done to the, to the transition? Because it would appear now that we're going to need all of this energy yeah. um, to heat the homes over the course of the winter. Those prices are going up. And so it's going to take an extraordinary effort to change habits, yeah. but also fund the change of habits. So, so just to tell me a little bit about the setback. Yeah. So I think two things I'd say. Uh, the first is, you know, the Committee for Climate Change came out um, yesterday and said, essentially, great on your targets, disaster on delivery. Um, and you're not doing enough. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think the big setback is... We're not going to do this unless there's a concerted government-wide effort to deliver. And Ukraine has knocked that off. Um, I think the second thing is it has, if you like, created a tension that I think some are exploiting um, in our politics between the cost of living yeah. and climate transition. And almost the argument that we can't do the climate transition because we're asking people to bear the cost of it. 
And I think that is a complete misrepresentation. So the irony of this is, what has Ukraine taught us? Reliance on fossil fuel that is dominated by a few players in the international market leaves us exposed, leaves us vol- you know, exposed to this sort of price volatility. Surely your solution to that is you flood the markets renewables that you have control over within your domestic economy. And by the way, you reduce your demand of energy through energy efficiency. So for me, the two things that, by the way, we should have been doing from 2010 um, in order to build our resilience anyway should be part of our response. Um, And our slowness to do that, I struggle with because we've had this now, but we have these moments where we just have this energy volatility. Um, and that, you know, if Russia is increasingly a power, that, that, that doesn't feel like that's going away. So this is when you do it. The second thing for me is, you know, the, the, the fact that globally, it looks like the economy is going to contract, it looks like this is going to feel quite difficult for Europe, again, should be focusing our minds on, you know, your two imperative climate and rebounding the economy. How do you do those two things in concert? So Ukraine should have been a wake-up call for us to actually accelerate the transition. And it is probably indicative and also tragic of our politics that it's doing the opposite. It's really interesting, though, because we're we're now seeing the the big oil and gas sort of making huge amounts of money from this. In, in, in your opinion, though, is this going to help fund the transition because of the, the, the enormous wealth that it's creating in those businesses? And, ma- and many would argue that it is going to be those companies that are going to assist with the transition. And so w- what is the responsibility of business now, yeah. and particularly in, the, in that sector, now to, to help accelerate the, the, the transition? So it, it, it should be... You know, oil and gas producers have all got um, plans for net zero. And in part, they've done that because they can see where the writing on the wall is. Um, I would argue that their investment pipelines have been far too shallow and far too slow. I think the thing that is quite instructive is when you think about the bumper profits that have been made by some of the energy producers, it hasn't actually shifted their investment pipelines at all. Um, So there isn't a sense that, oh, gosh, we've got windfall, so we're going to chuck a whole lot of that into accelerating um, the shift to um, renewables. Uh, And so uh, uh, maybe this this shows my bias. In some respects, I think some businesses will do that and they might accelerate. But I actually think, which is why I was a proponent of the windfall tax, you have to sort of take some of that and then actively invest it in other things. And part of that is about support package, but part of that could be about renewables. But, but I would just add, you know, there is both in private finance, there is a, there is a lot of money that wants to go into green. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like we, we have a lack of capital, you know, but I think that some investment feels a bit risky, some investment you need to de-risk. So which is why I come back to state investment that is a catalyst that then draws in private investment. So on all the aspects, whether that's investment in renewables, whether that is about energy efficiency, Government has a role to catalyze, to sometimes de-risk, to sometimes take punts, where actually the private sector just a little bit nervous about it, in order to help this transition along. And government absolutely has a right role to play in not just getting the money in, but getting the money to work for people. Because we can do the transition yeah. in the technology, but whether that works for people is a different matter. And that does require government working in concert with private investment. Right. And I mean, and, and business as, as, as well. I, when I think about business, do, do you think in, in this respect that business really recognises how climate change um, and, and, and social issues are interrelated? You were talking about the areas that you think are, most, are going to be most affected by this in areas of the north and heavily in, in industrial areas. Do you think... Do you think we sort of recognise what those challenges are and how these two issues are connected? Uh, no, uh, which feels like quite a harsh answer, but I'll tell you why I say that. So I feel like there is a huge level of business understanding on climate. And actually, in many respects, I think the private sector is ahead of yeah. the public sector uh, on this. I think, you know, we have uh, ESG, uh, and I always sort of uh, say you, you ESG say that with a, bit of yeah, a with a smile, because I think, <laughs> e, yeah, there's some greenwashing, but we're getting there. S and G, we're nowhere near where we need to be. And the interaction between the two is just not there. So often you will see when companies are thinking smart about it, they will like, well, there's a clear plan uh, for transition to net zero and we know what we need to do. 
we know we need to care about the social stuff, so we'll come up with some really good community yeah. schemes. We might do some apprenticeships. We might do some, if you like, social service type things. The, the, the idea that those two things are interacted and actually the way that you do your transition to net zero has to build in the social. I don't think that's in our consciousness. But to be fair to business, I don't think it's in the consciousness of the government either. And one of the challenges, you know, we bang on about just transition because you've got to think about the transition, not just in terms of the goal of getting to net zero, which, by the way, we could do quite easily. But we will do it in a way that hammers a lot of people. And I would argue that a lot of our institutions aren't thinking about that connection. And that is part of the thing that we need to change. You say that we could do it quite easily. We're on a pretty crazy course at the moment because we're not even close to the 1.5, really. Um, we've got COP coming up in, I think, November this year in, in, in Egypt. It's going to come around really quickly. Do you think anything's changed since since then, besides the war? But do you think anything's actually materially changed in both the government's agenda and on the world stage? Because what is it that we're going to be able to get done at this particular COP? Or are we sort of are we thinking perhaps further ahead to the next COP because there hasn't been enough time yeah. between between the previous one? Yeah. So when I say easily, yes. I mean because <laughs> I, I, mean, I think this is really important because I think you know the pathway is clear. Yeah. How we get there is clear. Like the, the, the hard parts of it, we sure. still need to work out. But how we get about 80% of the way there is clear. What is really hard is political will. And this yeah. is why COP is so desperate. You know, a lot of, I think a lot of climate activists that were at COP left desperately depressed. And in part, that was because the science is so clear. And it's not even like it's, you know, for a long time, this felt like something that was like, oh, forever. You know, it's so far away in the future that we don't, the here and now takes over. But, you know, whether it was the example of the small islands, whether it's what we're seeing yeah. across the global south, it is here, it's happening, it's impacting on our communities. And it requires political will. And by political will, I mean both amongst our political institutions, but all of our institutions and we're just not there. Um, and I don't think that has changed since COP. And if anything, I think, yes, uh, you know, governments have got on with the job of coming up with their plans. Planning's the easy bit. The delivery is the, the problem. Time. And we're not there. And I fear what will happen is we will dilly-dally along like we are now, and then we will have a pandemic moment when there's suddenly a sense that, oh, gosh, this isn't just happening to countries that are really remote and we can ignore this, this is coming closer and closer to our shores. And so we need to act and we need to act in a big way. And the hard bit is the people bit. The easy bit is like your transition plan, what you need to do, your technology. The hard bit is how you get this right for people, both within your own country, but then across the world. Yeah, that's right. Because in, 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 unless we have a vision for change and, and and a government and businesses evangelizing for that change. The risk is that we become quite complacent or we say, oh, it's not really going to make any difference. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of need to see the plan in action to see what the role is then for the people within that within that change too. And can I say the uh, one thing that gives me hope? Um, two things that give me gives me hope. One is the fact that actually most stakeholders, including businesses, will say once we've got the plan and we know where the political leadership is, we will rally. Um, and I generally believe that. Okay. The second yep. thing that gives me hope is the pandemic. Because we saw governments across the world doing extraordinary things yeah. at record time. We saw uh, the pharmaceutical industry, we saw business, we saw science operating in extraordinary pace and momentum to solve a global set of issues. And we got a lot wrong in it. But if you had told anyone four years ago yeah. what we did and what we saw and what we achieved, we would have in that time scale, most people would have laughed at you. So it is possible. Yeah. It is that point of urgency, focus and political will. We will get there, but unfortunately it's a bit of a bumpy ride to get yeah, there. I think it's going to be a bumpy ride. You're right. Uh, the irony, of course, of the, of, of the, pandem the health pandemic was that we did better for the environment as well. Yeah. And actually just by locking down by keeping people in their homes, by reducing the transport, no flying. That was the thing that's actually going to solve the, 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 the environmental problem. Um, so, uh, yeah, we need sort of radical, radical change. What you're saying is we basically need to get on war footing 
sort of pandemic-style footing to tackle the, the, the climate change. And you can't issue. do with that. So when yeah. we talk about a Green New Deal, what we mean is it's a warlike effort in order to deal with a systemic problem. And unless you have that mindset, we will just dilly-dally. Thank you, Miata. I'm going to ask... Uh, the, uh, the people who are watching to, to share any questions they might have. And before I come to those, I'm just going to ask you to give us a couple of, give us a couple of predictions. No easy feat, I, I should say that. Um, I just, you know, we've done a bit of sort of future um, gazing there around the environment, but just in terms of um, looking ahead for, for business, if you're a, a, a business leader now or giving advice to business leaders, what are the three things that they should be putting on their agenda to reduce this um, trust divide between the low income and the high income? So for me, the three is one, wages. I don't think you're going to get away from that. Yeah. And I think a lot of uh, CEOs and boardrooms will have that front and centre, um, in part because the wage challenge is made harder because, if you like, uh, government support to cushion price rises hasn't been as big as it had been. Uh, so, you know, if we were in France and, you know, you only saw energy bills going up 4%, wage to, the demand for higher wages would be much lower. So I think that's the first thing. Um, and, I, and, you say, and I say that in the context of living standards having stagnated for well over a decade. Um, I think the second uh, is we are going, we're about to go through a really tough economic time. And, you know, the whole debate on cost of living has been about yeah. individuals and households. But businesses are struggling, right? Those price rises yeah. that we're seeing in energy are hitting businesses as well. And the thing that, and the history books will write this up in, in quite a phenomenal way because it is not just this hit off the back of a period of prosperity. We've literally just gone through the pandemic where a lot of businesses were shut down. So there is not that much resilience. And then you're having to deal with these sorts of yeah. price rises. And then I think the third thing. So, so, so business needs some relief. Is business, yeah, yeah, absolutely needs yeah. some relief. And it's not part of the debate at the moment, but it will need to be. Um, and then I think the third thing is, for me, we are we are at a pivot point, and there are going to be some fundamental questions about our economy and who it's for and who it's working mm -hmm. for. And I think there is a vital role for all businesses to be in that debate, helping to shape a different kind of economic settlement. And so, you know, those business leaders that are shouting about social purpose and a different type yeah. of model... I think all businesses need to rally around that because I think that's what your workers are going to expect. That's what your customers are going to expect. And what I don't want is a world in which there's a them and us. Yep. And I think actually this is a collective issue. And the more the business voices that we have saying, what is our role in helping to solve this? And what does that mean for our people? And what does that mean for our communities? And how is that part of our business model as we go forward? Yeah, really interesting. So, and, and so I think, I, I think also what you're saying there the, um, is that business needs to walk the walk. As well, it's it's not enough to make pledges in much the same way as the government has. It's time now to take action, and and for that action to be to be meaningful. Um, you, you touched on there the um, the partnership between government, business, um, and local communities. The first question that we have from Lorraine is: government policy seems very reactionary to to media headlines at the moment. Would creating and publicising plans worked out at a local level and with community and business increase trust? Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, so what's the truth? I, I fear that our politics at national level is going to feel a bit bonkers uh, for a little while. That's a technical term. Yeah. Um, and, and the ability of the government, this government, uh, under this prime minister to focus on a long-term agenda, I think is going to be quite curtailed. But there is really heartening work happening at the more regional and local level. So I completely agree with that. I think businesses engaging with their civic leaders at regional um, and local level and thinking about the plan for a place because at the moment there's not a single local authority or not a single combined authority in the country that isn't thinking about how on earth do we protect our local economy and how do we, you know, to use the government's phrase, build back better from this horrendous yeah. time. And being part of that conversation and part of that solution, I think, is something that can be done. And then amplifying that on the national stage, which a lot of local leaders are trying to do. They're like, you know, you take something on retrofitting. A lot of leaders are like, we don't understand why on earth the government isn't acting. So we're just going to crack on and say, look, here, literally, here is a roadmap for how you could do this that starts to kind of signal yeah. a direction of travel. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I must admit, I, I think, um, you know, we have a commitment here. We're in Victoria. Um, there's a, a thriving local community. It's a very young, uh, young demographic, a very diverse demographic here. 
Um, but what's interesting to me is I, I don't think we've ever been reached out to by a local council or committee. And, and it, I think um, some charities some charities do, and that's and that's great. Um, and I can see much greater partnership happening at, at, at that level, but I think it does need to happen at that sort of more institutional council council level as well. Um, we have another question in. This, is, I mean, any this is a, a real punt here. Right? It, it, the question is, um, what do the next months, uh, six months, have in store for the government? How different do you think the government could look? Could we have a new prime minister? Oh, good question. Um, so I, I can't see this Prime Minister surviving. Um, and the reason I say that, uh, and I don't have huge insights into uh, the Conservative Party, but from all the conversations I've had with sort of Conservative MPs um, and Conservative advisors, you know, there is a lot about this Prime Minister that was always anathema to the kind of the core Conservative uh, thread, <laughs> yeah. uh, one of which being the question of trust, the question of um, truth and honesty and integrity. Um, and I think a lot of them sat on their hands uh, whilst he was still an electoral asset. Uh, and all the polling, and indeed the recent by-elections in Wakefield and Tiverton, have shown that that is no longer the case. Um, and in fact, he is a liability because he's dragging down the party. Now, there are some that thinks he can pull it back, and, and he's, you know, he's always been Teflon. But I, I don't know. I think the public's mind is made. So I think it's just a matter of time. Um, and I think... I suspect that there are those rebels of the call that are just biding their time for the next moment, and he will be under quite a lot of pressure to either go or be moved. And in the end, I think the Conservative Party, they need to allow him to take the hit for everything and move yeah. on, and they need a new leader that can say, I hear everything you've heard, we haven't got everything right, and this is our perspective, and this is how we're going to take things forward, and that's probably their best shot. Um, at turning things around in the general election. And if there was to be one person to take over, who do you think it might be? Well, that is the problem. Because I think if there was an automatic successor... And they would when have done it already. They would have done it yeah. already. So when it looked like Rishi yeah. was in the sidelines, there was quite a lot of momentum. Uh, the fact that he's been so damaged, both by his own kind of personal financial um, situation, but actually more importantly, just his misjudgment, because I don't think it's yeah. the fact that he was rich, it's yeah. just the fact that yeah. he got things wrong, but also his handling yeah. of the cost of living. Um, you know, I remember in, um, in the autumn budget and then again in spring, I was like, he must not understand the politics yeah. of this to be doing what he's doing and not acting. Yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a, um, a horrible think, misjudgment. Yeah. yeah, and I think that lack of judgment has desperately damaged him in terms of his poll rating has made some that were supporting him probably nervous that he's quite green and inexperienced, yeah. which he is. And the lack of someone that is an automatic successor is the thing that's holding it back. But what I say is there are many good people, you know, and I, you know, this is not a party good political, there are good, honourable, sharp, decent yeah. people in the Tory benches. And the fact that you can't find anyone that is better than this Prime Minister, I think is probably too harsh. I think there are many people that could probably do, do a, a better much job. better job. Yeah, and be more trusted. Okay, so so you're expecting change. Okay. Uh, one last question. I think people want to end on a, on a high mm. note. They want some hope. Yes. Uh, I'm all about hope it, it, and optimism. Yeah, and, and you did say that there is hope and that you do see um, uh, some opportunity um, coming down the line uh, because a lot of the, the conversation that we've had in the context and even the outlook is quite bleak. But where are the greatest opportunities or silver linings, both for, I'd say, for government, for business, for society? So for me, so I'm actually quite an optimist. And part of the way that I read everything that we're seeing, and I don't see this moment as a one-off. I think we've sort of seen this playing out over the last sort of 15 to 20 years, where, if you like, the contradictions in our economic model yeah. and system are coming to the fore. Um, and um, I think it is galvanizing a demand for change. And it's galvanizing a demand for change amongst people. And at the moment, that's sort of neutered by an apathy about whether change can happen. I think it's galvanizing a debate across the political spectrum about, if you like, I don't, you know, our model of capitalism, that sounds too kind of grand, but like the economic system and yeah. who works. You know, when Theresa says the economy's not working for everyone, at the same time as Jeremy Corbyn was saying the economy works for uh, the few, not the many, that analysis was completely right and was shared across the political divide. And I think that has bubbled and we're seeing it in the discourse in business. You know, in the pandemic, there wasn't a single person that wasn't saying, gosh, the things that are wrong with our economic system are in massive spotlights and we're seeing it and there has to be something coming out of that. And I feel like we're getting to a point where there was just 
a conflation of all of that to this thing feels quite broken. What is the alternative? The thing we haven't alighted on is what that right. alternative looks like and all of our roles to create it. But it does feel like we're at a turning point. A and new I'm, economic system. And I'm, I'm hopeful. And actually, it's not like we're having to, you know, do it from scratch. Because I think if you look in the business community, if yeah. you look at some of the work that's happening in communities, if we look at other countries, there are lots of people trialing things out because they're trying to find solutions around what they see as the fault lines and flaws in our current system. And for me, you know, what our organization does is that we nick all of that to try and say, well, this is what a prospectus looks like. And that is clearer now for me than it was 10 years ago. And so that consensus around change, that this thing isn't working, plus the fact that we have ex these exemplars of how it could be different, is the thing that makes me really, really hopeful. So, so I, we're, bo you know, we're bottoming out and we can, and we can accelerate. 100%. 100%. Yeah, that's all we've got time. But thank you so much. Uh, you fascinating discussion. Me. Thank you very much for coming in. And thank you to everyone uh, for joining us, all the viewers. Uh, that's all we've got time for. Thank you. See you again soon.